So when you make the decision between the best company, biggest company, most innovative company versus a small company that is at the same caliber, but at just a different point in its evolution and tackling the problem from a different angle, I kind of see levels in Apple in that sense, like different, but the same. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. When a person's curious, has an open mind, very much a growth mindset, well, it can lead them down all these different paths. Well, Maz, he was working in New York in the world of finance. And when Maz started to think about the impact that he wanted to make in the world, well, working with a hedge fund, it was challenging, but it wasn't necessarily fulfilling him. And so Maz started exploring what are all these different career paths that I could take? Maz ended up joining Apple and had an incredible opportunity to work in the strategic business unit. That meant that he got exposure to all these different projects that took place around the world. After a number of years, a new business unit was getting started at Apple, the Apple Health Team. As Apple started to think about some of the initiatives that they wanted to undertake, well, Maz was at the starting line of a lot of these projects. And so Maz, after eight years, decided to move on from Apple. Something that seems like a big swing when you're working with a big blue chip tech company. Well, when he decided to move on to Levels, it was strictly because he wanted to be part of this movement of making an impact in the world as it pertained to metabolic health. And so Maz joined the team late in 2021. The idea is that Maz would come on board as head of business to help us scale our efforts. As we think about things like business model, as we think about things like vendor relationships, and so Maz and I sat down and talked all about his background, his experience, and why he's excited to join Levels and be a part of what we're doing. Here's where we kick things off. So you have had this very interesting path into Levels, this eclectic background of living all over the world, literally all over the world, in different countries, working all over the world, and... You had a path from working in banking, working with a hedge fund or finance, if you want to call it that. And then you went and worked with Apple doing things more around business and strategy. And so here we are with Levels, January 2022. And it would be great just to hear like what, what was it that brought you to Levels after being in a very high pace and, and important career with Apple? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer that question. But even maybe it would be helpful to go even you know further back to... Take uh, it back to childhood all the way. Starting take it back. At the foundation. Yeah. So, you know, as you said, I've lived in a number of places and that shaped how I, I think I was brought up, which is um, it really shaped my career. And as you said, I took a really nonlinear path in my career, but also, you know, previous to that, living in different places, you kind of experience different things um, and tend to not take things for granted and always 
you know, looking for what's different in your environment and, and how, do you, how do you respond to that or adapt to that. And it also creates that sense of wonder a little bit too, because you're always discovering new things that you had no idea about. So when, you know, I started my career, I did, I trained as an electrical engineer in undergrad, and I had a couple of engineering jobs. One was at Honeywell and worked for their private jet division, working on something called a ground proximity module. It's basically think that, uh, make sure you don't crash into the ground. And working on that and looking around, I noticed that, you know, obviously aerospace is super cool when you're in college. You think that's like the coolest, most high-tech stuff that you'll ever work on. But then looking around, you notice that, you know, people have been there for 30, 40 years and working on almost the exact same thing. And at the time, I didn't know why, but, you know, it was pretty clear after working there for a month because of all the regulation and the safety and what the failure means. It means that you can't really innovate that fast. And so, you know, when I looked and, you know, thought about my career and do I want to be working on the same thing for 30 years, I think that kind of gave me a different perspective, especially given that my life up to that point was a lot of different things and change. So then I did a soul searching of what do I want to do with my life at, uh, you know, 21 and 22. And the thing that really excited me was understanding how things work. Basically, we all have a model in our head of how we think the world works, but then there is the actual model out there that is the way the world works. And, you know, living in different places, it was very cognizant that the way you think the world works is very different than the, the way the world works. And so I wanted to pick a career where I could learn that. And so I jumped into consulting and always knew that this is not something I want to do for the long term, but really as a way to understand how business works and, you know, how different companies work and get a broad exposure to business. So I worked in consulting for a few years, always knowing that I want to do something different, but I wasn't sure what. And during those few years, I got introduced to a number of uh, ideas or books and people. And some of the people that impacted me the most was probably uh, Ray Dalio and his principles book, which gives you models about mental models about, you know, how to think about stuff. And then also another person that really influenced me was Charlie Munger, which as you know, is uh, Warren Buffett's business partner. And he's very big into mental models. And so I got really interested in that. And as part of that process, I got interested in finance, really not, you know, your traditional finance, but the finance that would help you understand how things work, how economics works, how how do the markets work, how does capital work. And I started studying that on my own. And after a little bit, I kind of realized I need to go get a real business degree, given that I had no business background to be able to do that. And I went to business school with the sole intent to work for hedge funds after business school. And primarily reason because I thought that gives me another worldview into how things work, whether it's uh, behavioral economics, whether it's politics, whether it's um, psychology. And the area that I focused on was macro hedge funds, which really looks at world events and understands how things are, what things are going to happen based on the underlying factors. And you make uh, investments based on that. And the other thing I liked about finance was that it was very much a closed loop feedback system where you would know whether your thinking and your decisions actually resulted in in the outcome 
that you expected and you would get that feedback you know, relatively fast. So it, uh, you know, afforded a lot of learning pretty fast, oftentimes actually pretty hard learning. And so I did that for a few years and I learned a lot. It was one of the most intellectually challenging things that I had done up to that point and I enjoyed it. But, you know, it, it occurred to me, and I think this occurs to almost, <laughs> almost everyone that works in a field like that, that you're not really creating things, one. So the long-term sense of contributing back to the world isn't there in finance. And, you know, people say you're creating liquidity or you're uh, creating money for pension funds and so on and so forth, but it just wasn't satisfying enough. That answer wasn't satisfying enough. And I'm sure a lot of other people could do that. So I was doing a soul searching of what I want to do next. And it was two parts. One is how can I, you know, contribute, but also there is a, you know, pretty big hole into your learning when you work in a field like that. It's very deep in a few areas and intellectually very challenging, but you're kind of missing some key skills or capabilities. For example, how do you manage people? How do you convince people to do things? How do you lead? Um, how do you create? And so I was doing a soul searching on what do I want to do next? And I had interviewed with a number of companies and got a couple of offers, one of which was trading the currency book for one, a large uh, multinational. And at that point, my brother was uh, were very close, told me that I should, he worked at Apple and he said, hey, before you make a decision, why don't you just come talk to a few people at Apple and see if this is a place for you? And actually, the interesting thing was Apple was on my mind, especially after Steve had passed away. I noticed how, how much outpouring there was for him. And I think part of that was not because of Steve the person, but what he had created and put into the world. And that resonated with me, the idea of how can you give back and do something that, you know, creating value in the world and the outpouring that happened for Steve kind of made those two things connect for me. And so I interviewed with Apple, I think I did 22 interviews over four or five days. They couldn't quite figure out where they want to put me and what they want to do with me. So finally, one of the executives there was starting a new group, working on new technologies that uh, took a chance on me and welcomed me and asked me to join his team. And we founded the what we call the Strategic Deals Team at Apple, which works on uh, new technologies. It was a wild ride. It's one of, one of the most interesting, fascinating experiences that I could have hoped for. It definitely blew me away and exceeded my expectation in every way. And I learned all the things that I had hoped to learn. I work for some of the you know most capable people, including the person that hired me, and learned a ton. And as part of that, being part of the new technologies group within Apple, I got involved in health when Apple started to uh, focus on health and worked on a lot of the research programs that Apple launched, worked on a lot of different technologies uh, that were related to health. And after a few years of doing that, one of the uh, executives that I had worked on a project with asked me to come join his team within the health strategic initiatives team, which focused 100% on health. And we started building and launching research programs. And he asked me to lead the business and program development for our research and our software services. And so I worked on that for a number of years and we did a lot of uh, interesting things. For example, in cognition, we launched the, one of the largest uh, cognition studies to uh, understand and quantify human cognition. 
And as part of that journey, I delivered a couple of you know big products and services. And at some point, I stopped. And I've been at Apple now for almost nine years at that point. And reflecting, I said, what do I really want to do for the next 10, 20 years of my life? And what do I think is the most impactful area? And two things came to mind after I did that soul searching. And one was metabolic health, given the state that metabolic health is in the world and the US, obviously, and what kind of impact we could have by really tackling that problem. And then two was mental health and just, you know, how the brain works and how the, you know, mental health side of the brain works. And between the two, I looked at different companies that were out in that space, uh, you know, primarily looking at startups, which I think would have, you know, been able to move fast and innovate. And obviously levels, uh, I had been introduced to Sam about a year ago and I'd been keeping track of the company and because obviously levels is so open and it's building in public, there was just a lot of information. So, you know, keeping a tab and on seeing what levels had achieved was a lot easier than a lot of companies. And I just fell in love with how we think about running a business, uh, thinking about metabolic health and the impact we want to have in the world. And so the rest is history. And I'm, you know, been here now for two months and it's been a fascinating two months and still a lot more to come. I guess it was like 10 years ago. You were in New York, right? Yes. Yeah. So you're, you're working in finance in New York and it was when you decided to work with Apple, when you're vetting these opportunities, you took a leap of faith. Like it's, it's not just I'm going down the street to the next place. You're moving across the country to a very different environment, a different geographically, a different place, but also the way that people think, the way they execute, it might be different. I mean, it is different if you start to think about the tech ecosystem that surrounds the Bay Area versus New York. They're just, they're different in those approaches and things are are flattening out with remote work. But 10 years ago, it was drastically different. So you took this leap of faith, you went to Apple, and then after 10 years, you had the same what sounds like this leap of faith where when you decided that it was time to move on and you were joining a startup, people internally were like, why would you leave one of the biggest tech companies in the world to go to this like small thing? Like, what do you, what are you doing? Are you sure? And so it was like, either he knows something we don't, or does he not have a clue what he's doing? That's, that's what it sounds like the two schools of thought were based on some of the conversations we've had before. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I think helped me was the fact that I've lived in so many different places and made so many different changes in a nonlinear way made that decision easy because, you know, I think one of the things that keeps us from making a change is change itself. And so being constantly changing over the last, you know, 30, 40 years, that was easier, I think, for me. I think the question of why do you leave the biggest company in the world doing some of the most interesting things in health and joining a startup is a couple of things. I think one is, I think big companies are really good at making things mainstream and creating a fantastic experience that really everybody can benefit from. I think startups, what they're good at is they can move fast and innovate and try a lot of different things. And I think in health, both are needed. So Apple's done a really fantastic job at creating platforms like uh, HealthKit that really gives the user control of their data 
and allows people to collect, review, correlate, and other companies to build on top of. And I think without that capability for people to take control of their data and for companies to build on top, I don't think the health progress that we're about to see would have come about. So I think companies like Apple are really good at building those platforms and then creating really refined experiences that anybody can use at mass market. I think what startups are really good at is when the system needs something that's not so obvious or coming at it from an approach that is not um, consensus. And I think even, and Apple is probably one of the most, one of the most fast moving companies, but it's just qualitatively different than a startup. And at levels, what I really loved about the mission was we are approaching health from the consumer side. So, you know, a lot of people look and say, well, there's big dollars in, you know, payer markets. And so that's where the product should be focused on. But the problem with that is when you're building a product where the buyer is not the user or the consumer, you end up with a different type of product. And I think what Levels really had focused on was how can we actually make a product in the metabolic space for consumers that people will use and enjoy using and benefit from? versus building a product for payers that will pay for products. And I think in addition to that, it's a much broader discussion. I think a lot of people are focusing on diabetes and glucose, but somebody taking a step back and looking at the broader picture of metabolic health, which is how your body produces energy, and thinking about that holistically was very new and innovative. So between the idea that levels could move fast, it was thinking about the problem from the consumer side, and it was thinking about a problem much broader than most people were. That was really attractive. And then when you add the fact that the way that levels is building the company, which is with a lot of integrity, with a lot of openness, and creating value people, putting consumers at the center, was also really different and refreshing. So when you put those two together, it's not something that's so common out there. So when you make the decision between the best company, biggest company, most innovative company as you know, dubbed by the media versus a small company that is as at the same caliber, but at just a different point in its evolution and tackling the problem from a different angle, I kind of see levels in Apple in that sense like, Different, but the same. Yeah, it's such a an interesting thing to think about pertaining to execution. So often people will say, aren't you worried about Apple? Like, or just Big Tech Co. Inc., right? Aren't you worried that like they could just go do it and make hardware and make software? And like some of these things are true and some are harder to implement than it might seem from the outside. So if there's the thought exercise of what is Apple really good at? Well, hardware and creating platform software, but not necessarily feature-based software. So what does that mean? Apple is really good at making the Apple Photos album, and that serves a purpose. But they wouldn't be the company to create something like Instagram. That falls outside of their core competency, right? Like it's not about riffing on nuanced features of some smaller feature of the entire platform. And so then it gets really hard when you start to think about it. It's like, well, would Apple go and make a metabolic health software product tomorrow? 
Probably not because there are all these other things pertaining to how does that fit into our current stack? How do we treat it from a branding perspective? Like it's such a deeper exercise. And I think that's where the dichotomy is of being a big established company that is pushing innovation in certain parts of the world. And then there's other parts like let's use the analog of headphones. So there's value in acquiring Beats, like 2014, the Beats acquisition, and keeping it as Beats because it would have been really hard from the ground up to build something that moved in the culture the way that Beats did. And so there was still value in Apple having its own headphones product that was branded differently. And they've remained separate for specific reasons. And I think that that thought exercise can be applied to startups in general. And whether you apply this to things like social platforms or software platforms pertaining to metabolic health, like levels. It's just a a different way of building and a different way of thinking about how can you approach the market, especially when it's frontier. You're exactly right. I think it's about changing the framing and understanding of how things, you know, work, which is it's not a zero-sum game. Right. And so Apple is a platform company that will create platforms for other people to build on top and may decide to go into a vertical. Right. And so an example is obviously Apple has the Apple Watch Fitness app and has offerings, but also has created a platform and APIs and, you know, health kit to enable people build on top, like Strava and so on and so forth. And so it's not a zero-sum game. I think the, the question is, how can you expand the pie instead of divide the pie? And I think by creating these platforms and then allowing people to build on top, whether it's feature-rich or whether it's just different take, is the right way to think about it. And I think metabolic health is no different in the sense that I think there is a huge market out there. As we all know, 88% of people have metabolic dysfunction of, of some sort. And so there isn't a shortage of people that need help. It's about how can we all do our part to create a technology that will help people in their metabolic journey. So I don't see it as a zero-sum game. And I think a lot of different products, services, and platforms can coexist to help people get where they need to go. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, you are exposed to so many different projects, ones that are confidential that you can't even talk about with anyone now, how did you take those learnings, like some of the projects that you were exposed to that had a global lens? And then how do you apply that to a startup? Because the scope and the scale of some of those projects is so much bigger where we're just not at that stage now. Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's a couple of key lessons that I learned from Apple. It just kind of, it becomes ingrained in you and you don't even realize sometimes you have these things ingrained in you. I think one is just mastering complexity and creating a simple product, not a simplistic product, but a simple product. And so really working through all the complexities and then offering something that's simple. I think that is one of the core principles of Apple that's executed really well on. And when we come to a start, when I come to a startup, it's kind of the same thing. There's so many things you can do in a kludgy way, or there's so many bells and whistles you can build into something, but really distilling it down and cutting and cutting and cutting and saying no I think Apple, you know, the famous thing is Apple says a thousand no's for every yes or something like that. And like when you come to a startup, there's so many things you could do, right? There's so, it's not a lack of choice. It's the opposite problem of how do you think about the disciplined approach and how do you think about what you say yes to? 
And given that startups are typically, you know, at the early stage, you go many, many different directions, but then really keying on like, what do you say yes to? What leads to a simple, simple, elegant solution versus, you know, something that seems cool is a core thing. You know, also thinking about the, from the consumer lens, everything we did, the question was, what does the user experience look like? Like, we're not competing on metrics or we're not competing on marketing slogans, but what does the user experience actually look like? And I think that's another thing that I took away from, from working at Apple. But there are just so many things. Um, and it's been, you know, really, it's really helped shape me working at Apple for, for this many years. And there are so many lessons um, that we can get, get into. What's the DNA? Like if you... If you're summing it up, like without reading a page out of a cultural handbook, if you're summing up, like what what's that core DNA that everyone has at Apple, and like what what is it at levels? I don't like. I guess it's a matter of we all probably will have a viewpoint about what it is at levels. But what if you're if you're looking at the two, like what was it at Apple that you're like that's the DNA, and then what is it at levels? You know, one of the key things that Apple did really well, and this is really deeply rooted in the company, is privacy. And it's not a, you know, it's not a surface level thing, but really deeply everybody believes in privacy. And, you know, another way to say privacy is trust, right? And so we at Apple went above and beyond when it came to privacy. And I think, you know, the corollary at levels is trust, right? One of our key principles is trust. And maintaining that trust with our customers, because as we know, if you want a long-term relationship with a customer, which obviously health is a long-term relationship, by definition, it's forever. And by definition, it's over the long-term. And we want to have that long-term relationship. Trust has to be there. Without trust, you cannot attract or keep customers. And it also would be a terrible place to work if you are you know, not creating a product that fosters trust. So I think there is a corollary between Apple's focus on privacy and Level's focus on trust. I think there's a corollary there. I think another one is Apple always thinks about the user experience. So if you look at Apple products, usually they're not the first to market, but when they come to market, they've thought a lot about the user experience and how is it used? How does it solve a problem for somebody versus it being gimmicky or gadgety? And I think the same thing is true at levels where we put the customer at the center. So every decision that we make, we ask, does this actually create value for the customer? And that could really shape how you make decisions on product, on business, on design. And I think so there is corollaries between the UX-centric view at Apple and the customer-centric value creation at levels. Yeah, a lot of a lot of those foundations get built early. You hear about it with Amazon or Apple, some of these companies that have DNA that's built from years and years ago. I mean, from the foundation, from the the homebrew club. Like that's when it probably started with Apple, right? Same thing with Amazon. Like when it was old doors that were turned into desks, and that was the way that they thought about being frugal and the way that they thought about being scrappy. I think this cultural DNA gets 
built in early. And if you can maintain it moving forward, that's a way that a company or all the team members of a company start to think about execution and how it applies to the work that they do. Yeah, exactly. I think culture is probably one of the most underrated, most important things that helps shape great companies. And I think, you know, Levels has done a really fantastic job for its size, focusing on culture. And it's really is what differentiates how people work with each other in the company to be successful, but also how does that translate into customer values or what the characteristics of levels that customers are attracted to. And so I think by focusing on ourselves and building that uh, culture, it just pays dividends both in terms of making and running a company a lot easier, but also creating the value system that then you can deliver to customers and uh, making sure that uh, it creates value. You know, the idea, for example, trust, you can't have a outward facing policy of trust without having a cultural value that enforces and, and builds trust. So they're all very connected and focusing on that internally will pay dividends externally. So you saw culture from the outside. I guess you watched it for a year or stayed in tune with, we'll call it air quotes, culture of what was being built. And that was maybe a lens on levels. That was a lens on metabolic health. But now that you're in it, right, like day to day, you're in it. How has the lens evolved, if you want to call it that, as far as like your outlook on metabolic health and everything we're doing? Right. It's like you're you're so close to it now that it's like it is your it's what you're immersed in. Yeah, I can tell give you a couple of examples. I think on the you know, how people actually interact with each other. Obviously, one of our biggest things is uh, asynchronous and remote and really putting that into practice. And saying that is easier than done because if you don't build it from ground up, I think creating an asynchronous and remote culture as a bolt-on is very different than thinking about every single aspect and creating a system that works together and reinforces itself versus just ad hoc. For example, you can't have a remote company if all the conversations are synchronous because it's just going to create huge information gap for people. So making sure that if you're going remote, asynchronous is uh, reinforcing characteristic is important. So, you know, I think I read a lot. I think I had read something like 50 documents that Sam had shared with me, which really helped because it's, you can read one document and say, well, maybe they just wrote that as a, you know, recruitment tool. But when you read 50, and they all work as a system and talk to each other and are consistent, you get the sense that this is not just talk. This is actual action. And so I had a, I had a high degree of confidence that what I was reading is actually what happens. And so when I entered the company, I was wondering if it was just a really well-curated set of documents or is it real? And so either Sam's a genius and, you know, should get a Pulitzer Award or this is real. And I think it's real. From what I've seen, I keep on, you know, pinching myself saying, you know, is this, is this all make-believe or is this real? But, you know, so far so good. And it's been a, it's been a really big learning experience for me as well because it's so different. The way that Levels runs the company 
is so different than anything else I've ever seen, which is really fantastic because it's almost like I'm a you know college grad again, learning a bunch of stuff that I had no exposure to. The idea of asynchronous, the idea of deep work where you know you really focus on thinking versus reacting. There's just so many, so many great things that I've I've experienced in the last, you know, a few months. Yeah, it's it's about resetting your baseline and your way of thinking, right? Like what seems so foreign and seems odd, maybe that's a good way of framing it, is seems odd. Like, hey, let's let's not distract each other. Let's not answer messages. Like that's and I'm saying it in a colloquial fashion because of course we answer messages and of course we make sure that we stay in touch with each other asynchronously, but it's not, Hey, let's feel this need, this pull, like let's feel this draw to go just check that inbox or check threads or check notion. Like we almost lean into the opposite direction and say like, if you are checking this all the time, then you're doing it wrong. Or if there is a behavior that is, hey, let's like, let's start having a synchronous conversation that happens to be through text and we're pretending it's asynchronous. We're all pretty good at calling each other out and being like, this is inefficient. What are we, like this? We don't work this way. It is a very different way of operating, thinking, working. And from the outside, it can seem a little bit foreign and it can seem like you, you said, like, is this just a really well curated set of documents that's painting a certain picture, maybe a facade of a company? And then when you see under the hood, you're like, that's not the way it is. But then people come in and they're like, oh, I just saw like more details of this watch. Some horologist like built this crazy watch and like look at the inner workings of this thing. It's <laughs> fascinating, right? It's just like a very, it's a very different lens on building a company. Yeah, uh, completely. And I think the um, it takes a lot of effort to do it this way. And it's I think what's different is it's not just the how, it's the why that makes the difference, which is, hey, not you, these are the things you shall and shall not do. And therefore, you know, we have a secret company now. It's actually the why, the underlying understanding why things work this way and why we want to do it differently. And, you know, the things that are we're proposing, why it's a better way to do it. I think that's quite important. And the pieces that, you know, the team has written is pretty deep and thoughtful. And one of the things that's just so different is understanding at a deep level why, for example, the entropy is set up in a way that it is. And by entropy, I mean, what if you, if you left things as they are, which way would they gravitate? And so the entropy says that companies will become meeting culture companies. People will tend to do a lot of short burst communication and not a lot of deep work. Like if you don't do anything, the system tends to, the entropy tends to move you in that direction. And in order to not move into that direction, you can address it a couple of ways. You can either come up with a bunch of rules and say, thou shall not do these things and therefore try to mechanically turn the system, which doesn't work because as soon as somebody's not watching, people are that don't understand why will just do what they normally do. Another way is to explain why and then propose a system that is also implementable and practical that will take you away from that entropy. And I think what Levels has done is being able to identify like what are the things we don't want to become? Why is it important not to become that way? And then proposing a system that will take you in a different direction and again, explaining the why and the how. 
And I think that's what makes it different than most companies where you just get a rule book of thou shall not have, you know, recurring meetings. Thou shall not have, you know, more than five people in a meeting and so on and so forth, which doesn't work. Eventually people will gravitate towards their, you know, natural state. Yeah. I think it's a matter of always challenging the mechanics and the assumptions. So we do something like, hey, let's use threads. It's an example. We transition to threads. I think it was around July, but we're constantly questioning. Like it's not, okay, here's this thing. This is just it now. It's how can we use it differently? Is it still like we're always questioning our priors and updating accordingly. And sometimes the answer is like, yes, it's still it's still sufficient for our needs given like the current state of the team size and the way we work and all these things. And other times we'll make micro changes. Like it's just constant evolution with every minor detail or every, yeah, every like very, very micro detail of a process or of the way we work, of what we do, because it will end up at a point where it just doesn't work. And as you said, it's just about entropy. Like it'll just steer in the wrong direction if it's not addressed. Yeah. I think, you know, the concept that, hey, things could change. So we should update our worldview. If the information changes, the decision changes, typically. And we shouldn't be dogmatic about it. And two, it's like, hey, if I was wrong, if, you know, we made the best run at it and we were wrong about it, we'll just change it. And that's okay. I think having those two concepts as part of the building of the culture, going back to the culture, you know, concept, it's okay. You know, you make your best crack at it. If you're wrong, you'll fix it. And if you're right, great. You're in a better, you know, better place. So you've seen some pretty big swings with Apple, very big swings with all these different projects that you've worked on literally around the world. <laughs> and looking forward, how are you thinking about this space of metabolic health and what we're doing? Like all the projects that are coming down the pike, knowing that the long-term vision and what we can do from an impact standpoint is large, but there are a lot of little steps to get there. How are you thinking about that as we move forward with everything going on? Yeah, it's a good question. I think I'm really excited about the consumerization of health, meaning there's no intermediaries making decisions on behalf of people, especially with limited information and limited science. But really, this is enabling experimentation and consumers to really take the center and then everybody building for those consumers versus for other alternative motives or ulterior motives or a business interest. But really, the consumers in the center and all the technologies are focused on solving problems for consumers. I think that this intermediation that's happened in US healthcare is obviously well documented and a big source of the problem. And now, you know, removing that and putting the consumer at the center, I think I'm really excited about. And then when it comes to metabolic health, I think it's just such a broad topic, which it's, you know, the foundation of how our bodies produce energy, which is, you know, I'm excited about it because it has profound impacts on, on, on our health. And it's a, you know, we know that it's a problem, whether it's our food, whether it's, you know, other sources. And what I'm excited about is having real-time feedback enabled by technology where we can close the loop with the individual and say, look, here's your behavior. 
And then here is the outcome within your body and giving that real-time feedback to people. And I think, you know, CGMs, for example, the reason they're, they're so exciting and different than many wearables that are out there, they give you direct biofeedback in real time at the molecular level that translates your behavior, picking up that hamburger and putting it in your mouth and your glucose response of what your body thought of that action and making that and visualizing that and internalizing that for you in a way that not many things could do. Like if I gave you a pamphlet that says hamburgers are bad for you, or if I even showed you a video of a life of a hamburger in your body, it's very different than you taking the hamburger, eating it, and seeing your body's response to it. So I think this idea, and you can extrapolate that and say this idea of bio-observability, which means like our actions results to a reaction from our bodies. And can we actually show people what that is and in real time and help them adjust their behaviors in a way that will lead to a better outcome for them? I'm excited about that. And I think the technology can get us there and the software can get us there. It will take time, but then everything is personalized and everything is you know, based on direct feedback versus either a broad brush science or even the wrong science. You know, for many years, you know, we've been eating a certain way, which has proven to be totally wrong. Or, you know, we have been doing different things that we thought was the best thing at the time, but because that feedback didn't exist, there was no way to really know, at least not on an individual level. So I'm really excited about consumerization and this bio-observability that allows people to make decisions based on real data versus conjecture or generalization. So then what do you think the biggest challenge is going to be because it's like the idea of bioobservability is insanely cool to think about it's it, it and it, it sounds so silly when using the analogy of like imagine if your car didn't have a dashboard and every time you needed to see if you had like gas in the tank you had to like get out of your door and open the tank and like look inside and be like yeah i think i've got enough like that's that's my <laughs> data point there it would be impossible to operate your car and keep it mechanically sound if you didn't have sensors. And that the same thing goes with, there's so much to learn about our bodies and what is happening internally, what is as far upstream as we can go and what the downstream implications are. But what do you think, like, what are some of the challenges that we're going to face? Because it doesn't happen overnight. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff around market adoption. There's a lot of stuff around building the product. It's it's not an easy thing to do, but it's very cool to think about. You know, there's a couple of different, um, you know, angles you can look at it from. One is the technology, right? One is the technology going to be available, mature, and mainstream enough, both from a user experience perspective and cost. I think that's a whole different, you know, set of problems. And then software is included in that when the software can actually you know, generate the right insights and visualization and understanding. So I think one bucket is the technology bucket. You know, when is the hardware is going to be ready? When is the software going to be ready? And how do we actually put it together in a seamless way that many, many, many people can use? It's not just a niche product for a you know, small group of people. I think that's the technology side. I think the second is the science side, right? We obviously haven't collected a lot of this data in real time 
And so it'll take some time to do the research and really be able to create the right either interventions or, you know, outcomes. So I think there is a science piece. So I think there's a lot of research that needs to be done in this space, but technology can help with that. And so looking at research from a different angle than traditional clinical research and coming up with different new innovative models of doing research, I think could unlock that at a much faster pace than, you know, historically research has been done. And I think, you know, Apple's been a big innovator in this space and, you know, doing things like the research app and, you know, the Apple Heart study to really changing the way research is done. And I think the third piece is this idea of the social aspect of it or the acceptance of it, whether it's the, you know, the established system, like the payer and providers, or whether it's people, right? Obviously, when you're talking about such a sensitive area as health and, you know, the newness of it, it'll take some time for that to work through the different uh, groups, whether it's the, you know, people that are using it, getting more comfortable with it to, you know, healthcare systems, knowing how to use it and leverage it side by side by the infrastructure that they have. I think, you know, I don't think that healthcare and health tech are competing. They should really be complementary in that sense. I think there's a, you know, use case for both. We obviously can't, you know, leverage our expensive infrastructure, physical infrastructure, you know, at the rate that the population is aging and this is becoming prevalent. So there's got to be a different answer. So I think there is a place for both of those to work in concert versus in a zero-sum way. So I think those those three things to sum it up: it's technology, it's the research, and it's the you know social side of it and the acceptance of it by the system and the people.